Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Georgia Heart Grand Rounds. I hope you're enjoying your breakfast this morning. Before we get started, I'd like to recognize that Grand Rounds is provided by Georgia Heart Institute with the generosity of grants from our industry partners. The planners have disclosed no relevant financial relationships with commercial interests. Dr. Fayad has a relationship with the National Institutes of Health and Trained Therapeutics Discovery. To claim CME credit today, please take our survey. If you are viewing online, the link will be posted into the chat. In fact, it's there already. If you are here in person, you will receive the QR code at the end of this session. If you have a question for the presenter, please hold until the Q&A segment. Online viewers may type questions into the chat and we'll read them at the end. And now Dr. Samady will introduce our guest speaker, Dr. Zahi Fayed. Well, good morning, everyone. It's good, to, it's good to see you all here. I know we've got a lot of people online as well. Um, and I know the room's going to fill up. Um, but um, listen, it's, it's my great privilege to introduce our Grand Round speaker this morning. Um, Zahi Fayad um, is um, literally one of the luminaries in um, cardiovascular and molecular imaging in the country. Um, he is currently the, the Lucy Moses Professor of Medical Imaging and Bioengineering at the Icahn School of Medicine at Mount Sinai um, in New York. Many of you might know that Mount Sinai is slowly accumulating a lot of the top talent from around the country um, in all fields in cardiovascular medicine. It's, it's been led by Dr. Valentin Fuster, who's probably our generational luminary in the space of cardiovascular vascular biology, cardiovascular physiology and imaging, and he's the editor in chief of Jack. Um, and so, um, and one of the jewels that they've managed to retain all these years is, is Dr. Fayad. Um, Zahi is professor of radiology, he's vice chair of research and professor of medicine and cardiology. He's the founding director of the Biomedical Engineering and Imaging Institute, where as we discussed in dinner um, last night, has a lot of faculty, a huge database of imaging um, and very, very innovative homegrown research and maybe even some spinoff companies from there. So a lot of innovation. Dr. Fayad's research has been dedicated to the detection and prevention of cardiovascular disease with many seminal contributions in the field of multimodality, biomedical imaging and nanomedicine. Um, recent collaborative work has been the study of psychological stress exposure to the brain. Um, now, I know that none of you have ever experienced any of that, so it may be a bit foreign to you, but I certainly have. Um, so seriously, understanding the fundamentals of that through imaging, um, Dr. Fayad's been really on the, on the cutting edge of that. Um, he also obviously has investigated the cardiovascular system and the immune system, which really ties into all aspects of um, human health. Um, the development of the platform of the platform of nanotechnology to produce nanobiologic for immunotherapy in multiple disease conditions. Um, I know that's that's a big mouthful, but I think you'll find out that he's also an extraordinarily teacher, and he's going to be able to share some of the work with us that even a simple plumber like myself will understand as we go through. So it'll be interesting. He also recently has really worked in mobile health 
for the study of disease and the deployment of digital therapies. As you know, digital health is huge. You know, how we interact with our patients in the community and Zahi has been on the cutting edge of that. Um, and these are, these are just a few of his many, many contributions. Um, and obviously he's been um, founding members and um, editors of, of most of the major journals. Um, and um, I will just highlight a couple of other things about Zahi. First of all, um, um, his, his wife is in business um, and has really been a very close partner of his. Um, so they've got a wonderful family. He's got a daughter who I understand is a junior at University of Miami. Um, so he does travel to Miami <laughs> frequently for that. And he's got a 17-year-old son who's a, a baseball player. Um, and um, also, um, you know, it's always hard to have a dad like Zahi. So both for the daughter and the son. But um, he's, he's very active into wellness and individual fitness. And despite doing all this and running an incredible international operations, you know, he finds time to take care of himself, which to me means a lot. And I think we all, as many of you who I've talked to individually, know that that's very, very important to us, that we support each other as individuals, and we really think of wellness. So um, I, his, his bio is absolutely spectacular and, and extensive, um, but I'll, I'll stop here. Today, Zahi's going to talk to us about in vivo imaging of the immune system for health and disease assessment. Welcome. Thank you so much for the introduction and, and really a pleasure um, to be here. Uh, this is a place has always been you know, special to me, Georgia, Atlanta. I have great friends from the Emory uh, team and obviously new friends here. Um, uh, so it's always good. And I've also recruited uh, from Georgia Tech, as you will see in some of the new ventures. So there's a lot of relationship between that New York lab and, and, and this place. So, so this is really the title of my talk, which in a way will cover what I'm going to talk about. But um, having uh, thinking about this again, I, whoops. I think this is the theme that I would like to convey here. I mean, every, every time you give a lecture, you know, and, and you hope that you have a, a message that you like to give. So I'm going to give you a little bit of a story, you know, that we've been building over years now. Is how can we look at what you do? How can we take care of that single person that comes to you and you care, you care for? And how can you use novel technology? And especially today, data-driven medicine is what it's all about. And I will explain to you some of the tools we're using, but I will also give you an example on how relate aspect relationship to lifestyle uh, and, and, and how we could expand that to all the lifestyle and talk about stress in general, but we could also think about the others too. This is something you all know very well, right? I mean, we live really in the aspect of dealing with chronic diseases. It affects a huge number of people. Uh, and if we look at now the aspect, not only beyond heart disease, we have cancer, there's chronic lung disease, stroke, Alzheimer's, diabetes, and chronic kidney disease. So the patient that's coming to you you know, it's all suffering, I guess mainly he came to you because suffering from heart disease, but there's also these other diseases underlying aspect that we have to think about to look at. And the aspect of 
lifestyle risks that we know have, are the basis of that chronic disease, tobacco use, which we've done really well. One of the biggest things we have done, I think, the biggest impact we've done is the aspect of cessation of, of, of tobacco use. Uh, poor nutrition, not doing too well here, and, and we need help. Uh, lack of physical activity. In general, I don't think we're also doing very well. And then, I, you know, the aspect of alcohol use. Uh, there's a recent study, people say it's good to drink one time. Now there's a recent study say actually no drinking at all. You don't want to take, suck the life out of this, right? You, you have to enjoy life. So that's why I do think you should be able to optimize these things and work, really work a little bit with people in finance too. They think about risk and think and try to fine tune that aspect of risk. Of course, risk is important. You need to take risk to get some reward, but there's a fine line. And I hope that maybe technology in medicine will help us manage that risk a little bit better and, 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 and help make us live happy and, and, and long. This is a topic that's very current right now. There are actually two excellent books by two great friends and people. One of them is called Outlive, Peter Atia, MD. Uh, and he's a great podcaster, by the way, one of the top podcasters. I know that uh, uh, Habib is, is a fan, and I am a fan. Um, and, and really, Peter goes after the aspect of this concept of we have to reinvent medicine again. We have to use tools, novel tools. We have to think about that person in a way. The other one is actually a great book also about scientific wellness. Uh, Leroy Hood, who Leroy Hood is very well known in this field of systems biology. He's one of the first people to help sequence the genome. Very big in the aspect of using biomarkers, precision medicine. He's one of the fathers of the P4s, the aspect of prevention, um, um, predictive, personalized, etc. And then Nathan Price, you know, his 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 great friend of mine also. He's a systems biologist, one of the top people who's done a lot of omics work. Both of them go into the aspect of how can we improve health in people? How can we concentrate and think about that single patient and subject early on before things get really bad? So these are great things, great introduction. I'm going to maybe you know, borrow a lot uh, from these messages. They're not the only one who talk about this, but I do think these are two great books uh, to listen to today. People listen, I listen in general, but I also like to read it sometime on paper. When we talk about this field, there are many gaps. I mean, we've been hearing the aspect about genes, right? I mean, people are talking about, but it's not just the genes. I mean, we realize today that excessive focus on genomics have not really panned out. There are other factors that you need to put into here. That's point number one. Point number two, we have a very limited understanding of the dynamic aspect and the trajectories of health. We understand, you know, we see people usually later on in the phase when things have accumulated over time, but we don't understand how you go from healthy to reversal of that health and how can we tweak that so you don't get into trouble. That's the whole aspect of this being able to monitor somebody early on and to use data longitudinally to be able to reverse or to avoid getting to the, to the, to the level of really sick. We're all going to age. We're not talking about you know, you know, not, not, not aging. We understand some of these diseases are diseases of aging. We understand that. All you want to do is try to do what we call the face shift. Try to move that curve 
to be able to live longer, to be able to live healthier. And that's the whole point of really going into data-driven medicine. Our health is affected by these multiple factors. You know, we've understood genetics really well. I think that helped us a lot, but they're not the only one. Did you, do you have lifestyle exposures, which I will talk about in detail, and you have the environmental exposures. And we ignore most of the time, actually we ignore actually all three of them in general, uh, but they need to come back into this because this is what's really affecting our health in general. I just want to also mention other things that we started to appreciate today, although we, I, I work in the field of cardiovascular disease, I've expanded to the brain, not necessarily because I'm interested in brain diseases, because we are seeing the connect, the interconnection between organs such as the heart and the brain. The brain affects the heart, the heart affects the brain. There's a whole circle that goes on. The immune system is modulating many of these processes. We hear a lot about the microbiome. That's a new discovery, right? Not a long time ago. Very powerful. There's a brain-gut axis. And there's also a recent paper published, I think, at the end of 2022 in science that talks about the heart-liver axis. There's a clotting factor made in the liver that protects the heart uh, from failure. So, so, of course, we in cardiology, we think about that the heart but we have to be looking also at these interconnections. I think it's gonna help us a lot better manage the patient and maybe also better find therapies to, to, de to deal with this. So this whole person, understanding and assessment becomes extremely important. Okay. We have intervened with lifestyle aspects. Actually, this is work by Valentin Fuster who really has you know, he's obviously an incredible clinician. That's his, he's a master clinician, incredible vascular biologist who understood the pathology of atherosclerosis. And actually that's how I got into this field. I was inspired by, by his lecture on the pathology of the plaque, but he's also has been spending a lot of his time recently, other than the poly pill and using novel therapeutics and prevent, it's the aspect of prevention intervening in children, but also figuring out ways that you can intervene in people to improve their health. These are just lifestyle intervention, non-pharmacological. And he has several studies. This is the latest example published in the European Heart Journal that looks at aspect of improving with motivational interviews. So this is, there's a mental aspect. So when we talk about being healthy, we're talking about your body being healthy. There's also that mental aspect that you need to deal with. Physical activity, in, in, and then just changing a little bit the way you work, uh, this, the stand-up workstation. You know, during COVID, you know, we, a lot of us modified our, our, our environment to be able to you know, maybe bike at the same time as you're talking to somebody on Zoom, or maybe have a stand-up desk, et cetera. I've just visited the University of Miami because of my daughter and I went to visit the great architecture department led by, by a wonderful person who is looking at innovation in the homes, how we could improve the home aspect to include lifestyle aspect. And this is a great demonstration from Dr. Fuster's group to see how you can modify this risk factor by making these modifications. So there's a lot there that we can learn, a lot there that we can do. The other aspect, and going back to technology, and looking at, at, the, at the left hand side, is, is this is by, by Eric Topol, 
who talks about the opportunity. Now that we collect data, we have a lot of data coming into us, electronic medical record, we have sensors, we, and maybe we have ways we understand you know, the environment, we have geosatellite that can tell us about pollution and all this, we have omics things in the blood, and the, the opportunity is incredible. I mean, he plots a way of not only looking at precision health, but doing digital clinical trials, hospital at home, which we've seen a lot, the uptake during the COVID, it stayed with us. Pandemic surveillance, we understood also that there will be, that there will continue to be pandemic and we have to be much more vigilant in the, in the surveillance. The concept of the digital twin, which I'll touch on upon here, and then obviously this virtual health coaching or virtual health visit. These are now potentially available and the opportunity is there because we have data that can be leveraged and should be leveraged to be able to do this. It's a very difficult problem. I mean, you're dealing with it here with large data aspect. Every institution is dealing with it. It's not an easy thing to solve, but we have to be thinking like this, data aggregation that's helpful to the doctor, not to give the doctors more data they can they deal with. We have to simplify also the way we produce the data and, and we show the data. So there's a lot to be learned. Obviously, AI, artificial intelligence, with all its different uh, variation, would be very useful here. So this actually is my, 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 my take-home slide. This is my, my dream project. I and mean, I've been working on assembling the element of this project now for over 25 years. And let me walk you through this. The idea is to be able to get to a digital twin, uh, which is a concept borrowed by in, from industry, where you have a piece of machine in the factory, but you are having, you sense, you have all kinds of sensors and you understand the machine, how it's working. You create a digital equivalent of this machine. So every time this machine is, you need an update, breaks down, et cetera, you have a computer version of that to be able to fix it and then you'll fix it on the fly. Um, um, the, the Tesla is doing some of that. I mean, you know that you don't have to go to the garage to update some of these things they have, and then we'll go over the number of sensors they may have, which is a lot. So let me walk you through. This is really is a way to be able to, you're collecting data. The biggest hurdle we have is that we have all this data that we want to collect and it's, and we can, but the problem is how do you aggregate that data in a way that is useful? We are interested in everything. You know, we're gonna do whole body assessment in terms of lifestyle, social, environmental, Solutions would be what? Wearables and apps. You know, the wearables would be continuous monitoring, which we can do today. Self-reported app, we all interacting with our phone. It's basically, you interact more than we interact with people now. And we know it's a very powerful tool. The phone also, which is here, has, an, has a camera and incredible processing that you should be able to use it also for diagnostic. An application in dermatology, you could do that now. There are some AI product to this, but I also think that this could be also useful to image you as a silhouette and figure out your body fat composition and content. So this is will be happening. Number two, now this is more in-depth assessment at the organ level. You have clinical data, you're taking vitals, you're taking saliva, you're imaging uh, with sophisticated methodology. Fast, you know, we're not talking putting somebody, um, you know, we, we, different techniques you can use. MRI being one of the 
most potential one because it's non-invasive. You could use very fast imaging today, possible. And you're looking at multi-organ assessment. And then finally, you're collecting information from the blood. There's a lot of multi-omics assessment today. There are even kits available, very powerful. After that is really where you create now that data integration and analysis. You work out this whole aspect of using AI and simulation and you spit out the data in a very friendly way to do diagnostic, prognosis, and intervention optimization. This is not something you do at a one time point. It's something that you want to do in a continuous manner. The trajectory of the disease is, becomes very important. But you're really sensing that and updating your model on a continuous basis and every encounter that the patient is having. Of course, data security, you know, and privacy, et cetera, all this. But this is not, this is a societal issue that we have to deal with. It is here to stay. We will need to work out in general how you deal with this, but the benefit that you will get out of this, I think outweigh the risk that you will have. Um, this is maybe, you know, too busy, but just to give you a sense of how would, you, how would this be important in patient care? As I mentioned to you, you have now, for every subject, you have now the digital twin. You understand everything that's going on in this. Now suddenly something happens, so there is an, an encounter that happens. So you're able to measure that and you're able to maybe change and help reverse it much earlier and better than you would do it if, if you have not been able to sense it. So this becomes integral in how you take care of patients. Okay, so now let me go back to the aspect of lifestyle, right? And, and we have all these aspects that affect our, our health. And we, these are called you know, stressors, if you will. These are our exposures, lifestyle, environmental, biological. And going in from the, the, the air we breathe, you know, the light we get exposed to, the noise we get exposed to, all the way to lack of sleep, exercise, diet, uh, pathogens, et cetera. We know that these have a direct effect on the immune system. And then obviously from the immune system, we know that there are data that showing us that this will aggravate or will induce somebody to have an event, either a myocardial infarction or a stroke. Uh, it's hard to study all this. I mean, we don't have the tools I have to say today to be able to evaluate in a good design, clinical design, the, the effect of all these things. You have to go at it one at a time and maybe in the future, try to integrate them all together. When we decided to study this, you know, I was initially interested, honestly, in the, in the other ones, in the one related to sleep, exercise, and diet. Uh, it was, you know, thinking about this, we felt that it would be hard to design such a study. There's a lot of things that we don't understand well about exercise and the form of exercise or even diet uh, and also sleep. So the tools were not there. Uh, so we decided to study stress and, and the aspect of what is goes on into somebody's being exposed to stress and what happens to you from a cardiovascular immune health. It's been well established, the relationship between stress and cardiovascular disease. So we know very well that there are things that are related to cardiovascular disease from diabetes, heart failure, you know, myocardial infarction and stroke. So this relationship is well established from an epidemiological point of view 
but we don't have a very good understanding on mechanistically what is happening. What, what are the changes in the immune system? What are the circuits also in the brain that are disrupted? Because you are, you know, you have to think about what are you going to do with this? Maybe you want to have some ways to reinstate that connection with maybe stress reduction, et cetera. Uh, we've appreciated a lot mental health, I think, more than before during the pandemic. And I don't think we know uh, all the, if the sequela of mental health from the pandemic uh, uh, to people. Uh, I come and we come from a country uh, where, you know, that has uh, uh, seen war and we understand, you know, the effect of war on, on people, not only physically, but also from a mental health point of view. So I was very interested in this topic. Let me define stress a little bit because stress is not a negative thing, by the way. You know, stress are actually good. Exposure to stress is, 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 is natural and is, it, 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 is, it is good, but it is, if it's done at a long time exposure, the chronic aspect of it is what is difficult. So this really is an uncomfortable emotional experience that changes things in your body. So biochemical, physiological, and behavior. And the acute, uh, sorry, the chronic stress, different than, than acute exposure, is something that occurs over a prolonged period of time. So that continuous exposure ends up being deleterious. It's linked to disease. We know that it's definitely related to major depression. We know of cardiovascular disease, diabetes, and cancer. And it obviously changes your hemostatus and then it aggravates and progresses disease in general. It's a different situation now when, I, when we talk about acute exposure. Actually, public speaking right now, if I look at my watch, my heart is a little bit elevated. Uh, maybe when you ask me a difficult question, I'm going to get a little bit more excited. But after that, I'm going to go back. You know, that's my you know, normal exposure. It's actually it's a good exposure. It's a great exercise. Uh, practitioners in healthcare, and I will talk to you about a study we did in, in healthcare workers and how we were able to identify the resilient group versus the other. That experience and that exposure to stress, it was the main driver of that resilience. So yes, we, we, you know, we're not saying we wanna abuse people, but you need to be exposed to this difficult situation, to this patient on the table that, that's, that's, you know, that's having a problem, because you will be able to manage this as acute and then go back. But I'm going to talk about that long-term exposure, and we've known that, and I've experienced it also during the 9-11 attack in New York City. Mount Sinai was a major World Trade Center um, uh, uh, with, a heart, with a cohort of even 6,000 people, and they continue to follow that. Taking out the aspect of, you know, the exposure and cancer aspect, uh, exposure to, 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 the, to, to the air, etc., there is definitely that stress led to increased myocardial infarction and stroke, taking out all the other factors that could be confounding, independent of also the status of depression that they had. This has also have been shown during exposure to other wars uh, and other aspects. So this is well known um, in, in, you know, from, 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 from multiple wars that we've encountered over the history. So now let me talk about you know, few now the brain and its different structures and how we could assess uh, the different circuits, which I think are very important to understand. So let me start with the first one. Maybe a lot of you may know the amygdala, which is really the center 
component of the brain stress network is really where it, the fear and anxiety emotions are, are modulated and exposure to stress, you know, would activate the amygdala. You very know about the flight and fight, um, uh, the flight and uh, the fight and flight, um, um, I guess, um, response. So that's what's really get orchestrated by the amygdala. People have demonstrated now in non-human primate, you know, using imaging, now using metabolic imaging of the brain and looking at the amygdala specifically, changing the different temperament and the anxiousness of the animal, showing that there is an increase, linear increase as you get more and more uh, anxious. So there's a huge activation of these two little areas in the brain uh, from, from that exposure. Also from epidemiological studies, people looked at the effect of the amygdala activation and the atherosclerosis. So this is using um, intima media thickness, which is a, one marker of, 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 of cardiovascular disease and shown that the more activated the amygdala in these patients, the more they had cardiovascular disease. So that's a relationship to subclinical atherosclerosis but now looking at inflammatory markers within the blood, one of them would be IL-6, is this inflammatory cytokine, and shown a relationship between the amygdala and the blood markers. So this is all very helpful to set the stage. So we decided to revisit this topic in a very modern, um, with today's tools that we have, both looking at the immune system from uh, in-depth uh, immunoprofiling, as well as imaging with sophisticated methodology, looking at PET and MRI. And we have a full assessment of the brain activity, and I will go into detail of that, as well as the immune system, and then obviously all the aspect related to the, what's going on in your, in your blood from a marker point of view. So this is from the pilot study that we published, and, and this is really novel finding uh, in the literature. Now, looking at two cohorts, you know, one cohort with, that we followed over time, and we had brain imaging on them. We had cardiovascular imaging on them. And I will explain to you the different areas we looked at. One would be the brain and looking at the amygdala. We have people that had cardiovascular events over time. So we went back and looked at how did the imaging look at, the, at that, and P patient that did not have subsequent cardiovascular events. So the people with cardiovascular events had a high amygdala activity in the brain, a lot of atherosclerosis as measured by FDG PET in vivo in the, in the vasculature. This is the aorta. The heart is there. We're not looking at that. We're looking at that accumulation. Compared to people without cardiovascular event, you notice that there's very little atherosclerosis or inflammation. The other area of interest, and this has been demonstrated in animal model is the activation of the bone marrow. That's really is a very important relationship because this is where the niche, where the myeloid cells and myelopoiesis is. And in animal model it's been shown that the activation of the bone marrow leads to this initiation and the increase of these inflammatory cells, like a whole rush of them. And that leads to, to increased stroke and myocardial infarction. So we demonstrated the same thing in this patient, 
vascular inflammation, bone marrow activation. This is all this whole aspect of hematopoiesis, which is a very important, I think, marker, as well as a potential target for a drug. Now, study number two, and this is where we really tied the, the novelty from. We've shown that we've taken people that have been exposed to stress, measured their stress scale, so there's a psychological instruments to be able to do this, measured their CRP, so, uh, so C-reactive protein, an important marker of inflammation. And we've shown that the more you are stressed, the more your inflammatory marker in the blood is up. That's what other people have demonstrated. So that's point number one, it's confirmatory at that point. The second one is we've demonstrated that the more stressed you are, the more activation of your amygdala is on PET imaging. That's another confirmation of the animal study. And really the, the novel aspect here is the aspect of arterial inflammation. So this is inflammation in the vasculature or the bone marrow and your stress level. So that I think is was the novel finding that led to that Lancet publication. So it ties up the story really well and demonstrate the importance of that amygdala and the amygdala activation, understanding how is the amygdala being modulated due to the stress exposure via the immune system. That's point number one. We've also done some analysis. We're looking at the you know, relationships uh, between cardiovascular event, bone, activate, bone marrow activation, um, and arterial inflammation. 46% of the relationship between the amygdala activity and arterial inflammation is mediated by the bone marrow. That is an incredible finding that again mimics what people have done in the animal model. Uh, so that's a great finding from a mediation analysis. And then about 40% of that amygdala activation and CVD is mediated by arterial inflammation. I think that's our most novel finding in the literature to demonstrate the immune system involvement and its connection between that amygdala and the heart. That's that connection, the immune system. Not surprising, right? Immune system is very important and modulate all these things, but now mechanistically, we were able to, to demonstrate this. Other finding, which I will not bore you, you're not neuroimaging people, I am not. I learned this a lot from my students and, and, and my colleagues at the, who do neuroimaging, but we have a very sophisticated mapping of the brain so we could, we could look at the connections. We have a way in, the, in, in, in MRI to understand how these circuits are laid out and what is being integral and what is being disrupted. So let me show you here very briefly. We have three groups in our study. We have the group that is PTSD defined. We have a group that it has been exposed to trauma, but is considered to be resilient. That's actually the most important group we have. The, and then finally, you have the, the healthy control. Notice that almost that, you know, dose response, right? So PTSD, very activated amygdala. In the resilient one, you know, much less or, or none. And then obviously healthy or normal. This is a beautiful thing to demonstrate the differentiation between this. And we've also demonstrated the, the aspect, which I will not go to, related to, to the prefrontal cortex which is another important uh, mediator of uh, actually, you know, your executive center. And it also helps in the aspect of, of lifestyle exposure, stress, 
And also I have some data related to exercise and the free prefrontal cortex. Very fascinating. We're still learning and analyzing the data. Uh, and, and I think looking at that connection in the brain with the rest of the body is, becomes very important. We'll skip this. I mean, one of the things that we have been you know, encouraging the AHA to consider, I mean, they've recently considered sleep uh, and added that to the AHA's you know, eight essentials. I hope you guys have been looking at that, uh, but we've also hoped that some of the work that we are doing uh, and others you know, will show that adding stress management would be another life essential. So that would be nine of them that we'll have to worry about. Uh, we'll get there. Okay, so uh, as I mentioned, I go back to this. And again, our, you know, our, our idea is how can we look at now the other stressors? Um, my colleagues um, and, and our lab is also doing animal models, with which you can tease out these things very much easier. You know, exercise in mice, uh, you can do that, and then disrupting sleep in mice uh, and understanding that, uh, you know, changing the diet, we know we can do that. Um, so we started to do some of that in human. And these are preliminary data on two aspects uh, to them to show you, um, you, know, the, 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 you know, the potential of this. One was the aspect of effect of exercise on the amygdala, although now we started to study not only amygdala, but the other areas of the brain that I get activated, but we wanted to continue with the amygdala story. So this shows that the higher, you know, you're doing exercise, the better is your amygdala status is, right? So it's really a good way to, for you to manage that stress and to really bring you that. Not, not, not surprising for people who exercise, but obviously more importantly, relationship to mace. So that, that's key. Uh, so, it's, it's, so, so the amygdala activity or responsibility is about, you know, 8% effect of that exercise. So it's, it's not, it's not, it's, it's substantial. Now, this is a fun one, which a little bit, I'm not sure how to do that interpretation, but, you know, we wanted to look at, you know, alcohol use and, you know, either, you know, none, you know, low, low, you know, low, moderate or high. And obviously we know that, you know, high is not good. You activate your amygdala. So, you know, of course, you know, drinking is a social thing and it has an advantage. So maybe in the moderate aspect, you actually is, you can see that effect. It is helping your amygdala. Uh, but I don't encourage people to drink. Actually, I myself stopped or reduced a lot my drinking. Uh, I just drink socially now, much little at home, uh, but that's my personal choice. But we also know it's an effect and we keep reading about that. So again, better understand these lifestyle exposures, not only on your liver, if you will, on the, but you understand what's going on in your brain will also be important. Okay, so that's theme number one. Now, theme number two is the aspect of, you know, patient monitoring. And, and you, you guys are practitioners uh, at this. You, you, you bring people, uh, you monitor in them inpatient at the hospital during your clinic visits. But it's really wires, wires, and wires, and wires, right? I mean, it's, it's difficult. It's hard to do these, some of these measurements, uh, or it's uncomfortable for the patient. It's not... You know, you get up from the bed to the bathroom is a big, big issue. And, and it leads to, to many, I mean, we've, we've seen many complaints and also many difficulty in managing these patients in this manner. So there is a hope that you could replace a lot of these wires uh, to in, in, in things that makes it easier. 
we've also understood that some of these measurements can be done at home. Um, remote patient monitoring today is very much uh, in, in practice uh, in the field of, uh, of uh, endocrinology of dealing with metabolic disease, with diabetes is one, but also heart failure. Uh, I don't know if you guys have seen the kits that get sent to these people at home. It's basically a big Christmas box, you know, with all these bulky devices. They work, but I don't know if this is the way to go. You really need to simplify things and make it more, more, more patient friendly, I will say, but also try to see if you could even do better measurement. But definitely having these tools, we know certain practices, you know, they use them all the time. And there's a reimbursement code. So there's a business behind this. Uh, the issue becomes is handling the data and having a way to manage this. At Mount Sinai, we have a mechanism to do this. Uh, every practice that I've talked to have a different way to manage the data and who is involved in managing the data uh, because we're learning about this. But I do hope two things, that the boxes that we send to the patient hopefully become like this, very small, very easy to use. Uh, so that's point number one and more powerful. And number two, maybe utilizing data-driven analysis to help with the dashboard and help tell us if the patient is going to have a problem or not, not sending the information to the physician, everything, because it's not going to be, they will not accept that. Uh, the, the, the business aspect and, and with the projections uh, continue to show, uh, although it has slowed down a little bit after COVID, but the uptake is there, it's factored in. It's a very healthy you know, percent of the population where we feel will benefit from, from this. And, and just, so there's a lot of effort in trying to do this, both from a device, from an analysis, as well as from a practical workflow point of view. Um, I mean, we, we know, you know why is this important, we'll skip. Now, it's puzzling. I mean, I'm always puzzled. I'm an engineer. You know, I, you know, I always want to measure something all the time. It's how we learn. You know, we learn always, you know, we have a circuit board. I don't know if you guys are geeks like me, but we, we, you, the first thing you do in a circuit board is complex. It's many, many things. But you learn that there are certain testing points. And that's what you should do in medicine. You should really have ways, but you should have ways to have these testing points. And I'm amazed that we know more about the Tesla that you drive uh, or, or others drive uh, and the plane that we take. Uh, I mean, in these planes there are in the Airbus 380, which is a very modern plane from Europe, 25,000, over 25,000 sensors, um, which mean that they know everything. You know, the plane is landing, the plane is taking off during, during, during the, 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 the travel, et cetera. They're collecting data and beaming that data to the ground are continuously, why? Because they will avoid you know, certain, certain disaster, but also maintenance. Maintenance of that plane becomes much cheaper. Usually a plane maintenance is over, you know, like typical 8%, to be a multi-million dollar uh, piece of equipment. So that's big. Same thing with the car. I mean, Tesla have integrated many, many sensors. I tried to actually look at their patent to see how many they have. It's hard to see, but it, it's about a, you know, over a couple of hundreds. A lot of it is obviously related and they keep changing that related to self-driving and the aspect, but there's also things in the, in the windshield, uh, right? Service of that now is you don't take it to the garage. You know, they download something, software, 
Why can't we do this with people? I mean, this is what, what, what really is amazing. Um, this is two, two concept slide uh, that I, I was inspired by one of my teachers, Elias Zerhouni, who used to be the head of radiology at Hopkins. Uh, and he became the head of the NIH. And he's also one of the big, big thinkers of healthcare for today. So when we were a student, um, we were talking about, you know, screening and prevention. This is really in the mid eighties at Hopkins. Uh, and he always said, you know, imaging is too expensive. You know, there's no way we're gonna be able to do this at the mass scale. Maybe it should be integrated. You know, we go through the security and this is an example uh, with TSA that are now healthcare workers, maybe in the future, uh, they can tell you if you're having a baby or not. Scary. Or you're scanning to see if you have smuggled a gun uh, or you're hiding something and then you notice that you have a disc in your neck. I mean, that's the whole idea of potentially bringing in this into your daily life. People have thought about this. You know, if you are driving in Los Angeles, you're spending a lot of time in that car. And why not collect the data where you're sitting on that chair? <laughs> maybe you'll see you know, how angry you are when people cut you off. Uh, but also maybe you know, there are also smart toilets, you know, put people measuring things uh, in the toilet, right? And you know, that's, you get sink, you know, from the urine, measuring people. So, so there's a lot in the future we're going to see this integration of this technology within our daily life and taking advantage of it. But I have, to, but again, repeating that, that we have to deal with aspect of security, patient security, aspect of, of, of privacy, uh, et cetera. Now, going back to what's feasible today, uh, we are seeing a huge increase of the use of wearables um, in people. I mean, I'm wearing two of them right now. When I exercise, I put a third one. Uh, I've been, I tested the glucose model sometime and put four or five devices. I tested the Aura ring also. But in general, people have an Apple Watch, they have a, you know, a, a Fitbit. Uh, so it's becoming popular. There are over 900 devices today. Uh, and the smartwatches, the rings are probably the most popular, right? There are other ways you could do this, you know, bracelet, like this is a bracelet, has no, has no, no screen. Uh, but there are also people integrating. So we will continue to see this. These are all driven by commercial entities with no healthcare. Uh, aspect. However, there are companies, you know, thinking about the aspect of healthcare. This is me. I'm guilty as charged. As I mentioned, I've been playing around with it. To be honest with you, the most important aspect for me over the, the 10 or 12 years I've been doing this, actually improvement in my sleep. It really forced me to do two things, maybe also drinking less. You definitely start seeing changes just from lack of, you know, you just cut your sleep by an hour this week or two hours, you definitely see that deficit. I mean, that number is there. Your heart rate variability, your autonomous nervous system knows exactly what you did. And it, it encouraged me and, and helped me have much better sleeping habits. The second one, honestly, is alcohol. I mean, you know, I love wine. I, I, I grew up in France. I grew up actually in a place very similar to that winery, you know, my, open up my window in the bedroom, I saw the, 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 the winery in front of me. But honestly, one drink, you're out. I mean, your heart rate variability is totally messed up. So yeah, it may, I mean, for me, it made me change these, it helped me, but not, it will not work for everybody. 
But I do think there is value to it if you're trying now as n equal to one u and you want to optimize your lifestyle. Exercise is such a big field. I mean, it's such so many different things. You talk to people, there's a bro science going on in there, so many. But nobody, I mean, there are great epidemiological studies on the benefit, but we don't understand all its nuances, right? Now, if you do exercise study and you measure things in your blood and what is changing metabolically in you, thousands of things are there happening. There are also different ways to exercise. I mean, then, you know, it's a dime a dozen, right? You know, endurance, resistance, high intensity for Pilates. How do we know what works for you or not? Do you exercise in the morning, you exercise in the evening? I don't know. All this is really needs to be measured. It's really more of a feel now. And maybe you follow a guy who said to do this because he had a you know, six pack ab. Oh yeah, I wanna be like this. But it's not science. The one that's even worse is actually you know, diet. I mean, that's the worst. I mean, none of the studies, I mean, I'm not gonna insult my colleague who do nutritional work. We know nutrition is important. But there's a lot of ways you should be able to tweak nutrition. You could even tweak your nutrition to, uh, to, to help you get out from diabetes. I really think we could do this. But we don't have good ways to do that measurement-wise, right? So there's people say, I need to write the legend, breakfast, what is the most important meal of the day? I don't know if it's true. Is it really true? I don't eat breakfast anymore. I'm doing fine, maybe. I don't know. Do I eat? To have a cereal, oh yeah, cereal is great. You need these fiber. I don't know, is it really? Yeah. I actually started to play with that continuous glucose monitor just to see these peaks. It's interesting, you eat a banana, you, you spike up like this. Certain food, you may be more sensitive than others. There's a lot we could do here. And especially I think in the space of diabetes, to be able to tweak somebody's nutrition to get them out of that insulin resistance is very, very important. But we need sensors. So let me tell you how we got into the sensor. And this is really during the, the pandemic. This is where I wanted to take what I've been doing myself and see if we can have something to do. So we had two ideas there. One idea is, can we detect the infection, COVID in this case, right? And then can we also understand better the mental aspect? So we deployed a study called the Warrior Watch, it was actually, all paid by philanthropy by, by, you know, from Mount Sinai. Apple did not contribute a single dollar. Actually, they made me pay, I think $385 per watch, but they took credit for it during the keynote lecture by Tim Cook. They're really good at it. I mean, I used to work for Apple, but you know, a little bit disappointed in how they claim credit for other people's work without even helping you and contribute. In any case, um, we all understand, you know, maybe a lot of you, who has an Apple Watch here? Huh? A lot, quite a bit. Okay, good, yeah. You know, heart rate, you know, heart rate variability, steps, et cetera. It can measure multiple things. It's been validated even for healthcare use in certain aspects. There have been great studies. This is the atrial fibrillation work uh, done by, by, you know, large-scale assessment. It has value from, from that point of view. Not everything that it measures is actually good and not everything it measures is done in the right way. But it is something that if you tell somebody, I have a study, I'm gonna give you an Apple watch, they sign up, they like that. There's a prestige also to have that Apple watch. I mean, they created that aspect to it. So that's something 
that I knew about because I was playing around with it and I felt that we, you know, something we could be useful. The other thing we've been doing, we've been creating this platform in our digital health group. We call it the eHive. This is, we wanted always to do is consent people to clinical studies electronically. We talked about it for years <laughs> and we built the platform. It was not, you know, approved by the IRB. They kept taking it here and there. COVID came, they decided that this is important and we got approval to do this. So it really helped us launch our platform into the study uh, and we customized the studies. So basically this app is something that can, if we give you a code, you can download from the Apple store. We can modify it according to the clinical studies. You can consent and you can create whatever interaction you want to have with the subject and then connect it to the devices that you have. So we have agreement with almost most of the most of the commercial vendors, some of them are annoying. They have some of them they want you to pay, some of them they want IP, which we say no. But we have certain things we can include Apple Watch, Ura Ring, um, Fitbit, etc. So for the Apple Watch, you know, we created that that Warrior Watch app, and the app had several things. It had symptoms, right? So we could have a little survey asking you, remember in during COVID time, your hospital or your Clinical center must have had a survey as you enter the door every day. You know, do, do you feel this? Do you do it with So we had some of that. So we could assess that aspect. We also obviously had all the physiological measurement, all the activity measurement, but we also created a separate one related to the, the aspect of psychological aspect. And I will go over that. The biggest measure and the hypothesis we had was heart rate variability because it really is your autonomic nervous system that manages your homeostasis, heart rate, blood pressure, et cetera. I'm gonna go quick now because I think we have a few minutes. One of the biggest findings we had is that we were able to detect changes in your heart rate variability data analysis one week before you, you were tested positive for COVID. By the way, it could be something else. You could be, it could be the flu. But in the case of a pandemic, it's better here. We're saying, look, there may be something. Why don't you go get tested? Very important. I mean, our idea was this is important for deployment of the workforce uh, in the hospital aspect. So that's point number one. Um, many others, by the way, follow through. We were one of the first people to publish. We've seen other people looking at the use of, of wearables to detect influenza-like illness, such as COVID, and you know, people did similar work, et cetera. We have a patent on our algorithm, which I think somebody licensed it, but I don't know if we're, we were still finalizing the deal. The second aspect is that I call the Warrior Watch Mind. And this was very important. We, we have an expert in our, in, our, in our space that can deal and design these scales that, in, that help you inter, inter, interact with your app, subject, you know, subject uh, reported. And then you do them on a daily basis, very few questions, and then you have a slightly longer one on a weekly. And there's a way to, to really manage the noise this way. What we found out, the bottom line, is that obviously these people who were deployed, if you were up doing COVID work, uh, you were stressed. <laughs> we show you changing. But we also noticed that there are differences between the different groups. The people who had the most experience from a how many how many years you've been practicing or trained in healthcare were able to manage the stress much better. 
if you were deployed in areas that were highly stressed, like came in from used to infectious disease, ED, et cetera. You know, so the, the, the guys who were really, so that was the young guys. The people who were deployed suddenly in a ward that they've never done this kind of work, they were freaking out. And also the new people, the new, the, 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 the guys who were just trained. So it's important then, you, then you're able to take that workforce and, 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 and help them and manage them in a way to strengthen their, 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 their resilience. And we did this. We had we built a resilience intervention. Uh, I'm going to skip, you know, how you do this, but there's something called biofeedback. Similar to now, a lot of the apps have breathing exercises, which I think are very important and they're very useful to helping manage the stress. You train them on these exercises in a little bit. You know, say do this breathing every day, etc. And then they we saw over time, over a period of the 12 week, that they improved their resilience. So that's beautiful tools that you can give back to your healthcare workers to be able to do something we don't do. Sinai created, actually, they got a big donation and created a stress resilience center for all our patients and all our employees to be able to do this. And I'm happy to give information on that center. It's very active in this. So and let me finish a little bit to say that this field is evolving quite a bit. As I said, there are novel uh, there are other, part, other people building things, either from the academic point of view, novel sensors that are healthcare oriented, as well as companies who are thinking about the healthcare space, not commercial uh, aspect like we are consumers, but really thinking about it from the healthcare. And finally, you know, we, 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 I recruited from Georgia Tech, you know, YSK, you know, who is, you know, building our own wearable, which is a novel technology you know, similar to what others are doing in other places. And the idea, this is really is now these flexible electronics. These are almost like electronic tattoos. These are patches. You can put them in a band. You can put them in different areas of the body. There's a lot of advantage to having that form factor uh, in terms of measurement, but also in terms of the electronic that you can embed in this. Uh, we've been testing this in the, in the OR to try to replace all these wires with neuro patches and sternal patches uh, for kids and patients and trying to evaluate how helpful in, would that be, as well as obviously things related to, you know, real-time cardiac monitoring, uh, uh, et cetera. Uh, I have been trying to raise money to create the, the BIMI Sinai band. It's just a gimmick, but we can, you know, anybody who's interested, to, we can put the logo here for you and Whatever you no, this is something that we're building for our research work. Uh, so we can deploy this in people. Uh, you know, so you could have an impact or you can have it as a band. And I have some exercise studies that are ongoing as well as things related to um, um, to, to lifestyle exposures and, and using this band here. And let me finish with this, I think, which wraps up you know this whole concept and, and where we are today. This is from the Bishop Desmond Tutu. Uh, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not a big fan of quotes, but I felt this one was good. So uh, th 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 there comes a point where we need to stop just putting people out of the river. Uh, we need to go upstream and find why they're falling in. I mean, it's really, I think, uh, treating, obviously we have to treat these patients that show up, chronic disease, et cetera. We have to fix them in cardiovascular disease. We've done a superb work, but I hope that we can push the needle a little bit more uh, by, 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 by helping extend the, the, the lifespan as well as more importantly, the health span by understanding why they're falling in 
and avoid them from falling. Because at the end of the day, you know, catching these eggs, you'll be hard. <laughs> you know, you have to stop from the eggs from falling. And that's Peter Atiyah, I believe, um, uh, a quote uh, from his book. Okay, thank you so much. Hey, wow. So amazing tour, um, you know, touched on so many different points and really made it germane to most of us as human beings, right? That's why I kind of started this chat about, um, you know, we're all on this journey and yeah. on this journey and it's personalized medicine. I, I do want to point out that um, uh, Zahi um, deftly navigated this talk um, to make it very, very relevant for us as healthcare givers, as people that run healthcare organizations, but most importantly, as people. Yep, exactly. um, and there's so many other aspects of his work that really dive deep into various aspects, but I thought that was wonderful. So um, I, I would love to take some questions either from the audience or from folks listening in on Zoom. Um, and maybe while, oh, there you go. We, we got a question, better yours than mine. Go ahead. Thank you. Thank you for a great lecture from someone who's, uh, who's passionate about prevention. I really appreciate these types of talks. And uh, we've become pretty good about measuring things like heart rate and uh, pulse ox and things like that with wearable devices. If you were to use your crystal ball how, in the near future, how would you measure amygdala activity, bone marrow activity, and those kinds of things that are a little harder to, to measure with regular devices? That's why I laid out that, that vision that you will be able to do different type of measurement. And I, and I break them into two things at different depth scales and at different temporal scales. So you're not going to do imaging in depth every day. That's not what you're going to do. You're going to do that at one time point, maybe in a year. But you're going to sample with wearables, with sensors, you know, almost every hour on a daily basis, et cetera. The power at the end is going to be updating that model of that digital twin with all that data at the same time. So you're going to have to deal with that multimodal, multi-scale data, and that your model will be able to tease things out. Is it important to measure amygdala activity daily? I don't think so. Heart rate variability is actually is a surrogate of that autonomous nervous system. But we want to do that. We want to be able to do both. Things that would be done continuously, maybe not at a very depth, and things would be done in depth, but done maybe at a single time point. The idea is multimodal uh, analysis, yeah. Yeah, can I just, um, because I, I was going to, thanks, Jamie, Jamie Burkle for that wonderful question. So the idea of the digital twin, right? I, I, I think that it's worth restating yeah. that and this idea of aggregating data, whether it's through sensors, whether it's through blood tests, whether it's through imaging, medical, record. medical records, electronic medical records, all the touch points, mm -hmm. aggregating that for every individual and then creating this kind of, you know, wellness slash health amalgam, if you will, um, so that you can not only potentially pick disease earlier, but you can inform um, health modification, exercise, diet. So I, I, going upstream, like the bishop said, right? 
Um, wow, right? Yeah. Like, like, isn't that, and, and I see Dr. Rios there who heads our population health strategy for the system. Yeah. Um, we've got to start this journey of moving from what we do today, which is do an incredible job of taking patients, taking care of patients when they come into the hospital with disease. No question. That's, we've got to keep our eye on that ball. We've got to think about efficiency, throughput, care, patient experience, all that stuff. But let's go upstream in the river mm -hmm. and let's leverage the latest in science and create. So tell me a little bit about this digital twin concept. Who does it well? And, and, and if, you if you think about it, tell me a little bit about some of these like even concierge practices yeah. that are out there that say, come to me before you get sick. And let's start aggregating this data. Where are we in the mm -hmm. delivery of that? Yeah. I mean, so two, two points here to make. I mean, I, I will say that we've heard that idea of screening for a while now. I think it also have been a little bit abused and misused, I should say. So we have to be careful, you know, not to sell, you know, something that is not really realistic or is actually not true. But also maybe some of the con these concepts have been a little bit ahead of their time. Uh, and when you talk about screening, you have to have, as you said, you have to have that overall look always. You can't say, oh, I'm, I sent you to an imaging screening center. We're seeing a repopulation re, 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 of, these, of these centers, but it's not enough. I think the key is to be able to do that screening. Let's say it's an imaging screen but you're definitely looking at all the patient data. So that, and, and the people, and there have been clinics, uh, the private aspect, the concierge clinic, have been aggressive on that. They really understand and they appreciate prevention. They know that the patient signed up for them because they want that kind of close service, that N equal to one service. And they are aggregating data from all the different measurements that they are making. Of course, you have to be careful, number one, you know, what, what are we talking about cost? What are we talking about incidental finding, et cetera, right? So all this has to always be part of the equation and always re-update your model and your practice according to the best practice this way. So that's on that point. Point number two, the digital twin, right? So it, it's a concept that really evolved from industry. It has not been fully applied yet to medicine because we still have not been able to aggregate all the data. However, there have been some examples. There's a company called, is it Twin Health? It's based from India, but they have an, Ameri they have an US subsidiary with a Cleveland Clinic clinical trial ongoing right now. They published only in abstract form in the space of diabetes and really relying on tailored nutrition changes to help people deal with diabetes. The, I have to see the papers when they come out, but what I liked a lot, what they demonstrated is that at the beginning, you need a lot of data. So you're collecting everything, but as your model gets better and better, the number of data points that you need to collect and to, to update becomes less and less. I love that concept because it's really, I mean, because we also have to worry again about that cost. Are we gonna be able to collect everything all the time? So you go into, that's why this aspect of sampling, maybe your initial sampling will be dense initially, 
which will be maybe expensive, but over time, it's gonna get less and less. So that, that's a beautiful concept. Uh, we know this from, from, again, from machines, right? Big air, airplanes and motors. And we know that initially you need a lot of data on them for maintenance. And then after you need just three data points. So that's, that's, that should translate, I hope, yeah. It's an uh, optimistic view, yeah. And we have, um, one final, we have one final question online, if I could read that, and then we'll need to wrap, wrap things up for today. Um, the question is, how accurate are these watch devices in evaluating heart rate variability during periods of stress? Mm -hmm. And which device do you recommend, Apple Watch? Uh, so in general, I don't think, I mean, so it varies, right? The answer on the different parameters on the consumer product, depending on which one you're using, changes. Um, some of them are better than others. In terms of my recommendations, you know, I actually don't think any of them are good enough, but some are better than others. So my, I don't have any plug with WHOOP, W-H-O-O-P. This is the device that has no screen. It's very good in terms of your sleep. Uh, I think heart rate variability is okay, but the rest is not, you know, you're not gonna get a heart rate or there's no actually act even steps and activity. I don't think we have a single device that can do all these different things very well yet. That's why we are customizing ourselves, the devices. The biggest issue we also have other than accuracy is when and how the data is collected, which we cannot control. Apple and all, most of the devices, these are consumer devices. They want the battery to last for a very long time. They cut out the data sampling just to be able to do this. So they take, they take shortcuts to please the consumer and sacrifice what you will use in healthcare. So that I think we will see an evolution to other 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 manufacturer who would be more healthcare oriented. Yeah. Well, listen, I, I know I have a bunch more questions, and I'm sure you all do. I, I do hope over time that we all those ideas, those questions, I see all those great minds that I work with every day. Um, hopefully we'll we'll get those. But um, I think for now we, we have to stop. And um, I want to thank Dr. Fayad for a really, really inspiring talk coming here. So thank you. Thank you. Okay. All right. Fantastic. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Please, Dr. Yeah.